You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. Redemption. Good to see y'all's uh, faces this morning. Um, so one of the small joys and privileges of this church is like we have real community here. And I guess I was a little vulnerable last week and I had so many of y'all reaching out and being like, hey, uh, you okay? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm good. It was a much better week and I appreciate like the real like kindness and love and um, sharing that exists here. Kiddos, obviously, y'all can head on back to Kids Church. You're welcome to stay in here with us if you'd like, um, but you'll have more fun back there. Um, everybody else, if you want to pull out your phones and head to redemptionhou.com slash today, you can see the text that we're going to be reading from today. There's also plenty of announcements. We've got uh, details on our upcoming theology course, baby dedication, uh, the exciting announcement that our baby, like, actual, like, baby's room is open and ready to go for you all back there if you want it. Um, and then we've got some youth stuff that's kicking off. You can find all the details there, redemptionhou.com slash today. Also, if you're new, if you go there, there's a button that says, hey, I'm new. Click that, fill out the info. We'd love to get to know you, hear your story, help you get to know us a little bit. You can also do the same thing by filling out the card that's in front of you in the seat back. We're really glad you're here. Welcome to Redemption. Um, this is actually really a safe space to explore and encounter Jesus. Uh, we exist to offer connection to Jesus for absolutely anyone. And so with that, one of the realities that we are confronting as a church over the next several weeks is like, how do we find life-giving faith in the midst of doubt? Like, culturally speaking, there's, there's something significant happening in the landscape of faith in the United States in 2022, probably in the West in 2022, but it seems more located here with all of the division and a lot of just the stress and reality of living in, through so much brokenness in the last several years. For many of us, our faith is being, like, dismantled or we are choosing to dismantle it. We're finding, like pieces of it, they're like, wait, this doesn't make sense to me, or this is probably toxic, right? And so we are going through what many call deconstruction or doubt or the dark night of the soul. And as we go through this painful and what can oftentimes be like this very unsettling process, we're rightly asking like, wait, is there really anything here worth saving at all? Like, did I just get like duped into something? It was just, just like the, the cultural thing that I was handed, and now all of a sudden I'm waking up and realizing maybe there is no God, or I've got the wrong God, 
Right? These sorts of questions that are important, but we're essentially saying, hey, is faith in Jesus really the way to life? And of course, as your pastor, I'm going to emphatically say yes, um, but I, I never want to say that in like a demanding way, like, yes, absolutely, you'd better believe it. I always, always, always want to say that in an invitational way because I think that's exactly what Jesus does. And I think when the church is like, doing and being what the church is meant to be, it's also what the church does and has done for 2,000 years. It directs us to these like deep wellsprings in the midst of like a barren wasteland that we can drink deeply from and find real life in. And so that's what we're doing over these next several weeks. And so one of the ways that we tend to answer this question in churches like ours is through propositional statements. Uh, this is who God is, and you should listen to me because I have a microphone, right? And we all sit and we hear and we're like, okay, cool. And we consider, does that make sense? Is it not? I agree, I disagree, whatever. But one of the ways that the church for a really long time in the East has chosen to communicate deep and rich spiritual connection, deep and rich theology is through images. Images like this. I think this will work. Yeah, there we go. Look at us. <laughs> so this is uh, Andre Rublet's The Hospitality of Abraham. It's a 15th century icon um, that was painted by a Russian Orthodox monk. The significance of this icon in particular, and the reason that we're having a brief conversation about it, is it is the most famous icon in the Russian Orthodox Church. And there's something about this that I want us to consider this morning. Why is this, like of, of all the ways that the Russian Orthodox Church has tried to like communicate and inspire faith, why is this like the preeminent one? Why is this the one that stands above all the others? Maybe more uh, appropriately, we should ask, hey, if I commissioned all of you right now, I want you, I'm going to pay you, and I'm going to give you the next year of your life to create some piece of art that is going to somehow connect our souls and our spirits to God, to communicate who God is and what God is like, what would you make? What would you paint or fashion or whatever? And why is it so far removed from something like this? Like, what is this? Like, why does he paint this and people find it inspiring and, and something is here that we're like, ah, uh, it's just like three dudes sitting at a table. Like, I don't get it. My suggestion is that this icon depicts one of the foundational wellsprings that the church has found life in for centuries. And the fact that we don't get it and the fact that we don't see it is actually pretty telling. That there's something here that's like foundational to really experiencing life in Jesus that we're like disconnected from in some way. And it's not our fault. I think it's because of so much of the faith that we've received. And what I mean by that is this, for most of us in this room, We've been taught that Jesus is really, really important because he will rescue you out of something. Right? We've, we've bought and believed and heard a salvation of escapism. That the reality is you've done some really bad things and God is really angry at you and so you are destined 
to burn in hell for all of eternity. And so you'd better believe in Jesus so that you can go to heaven for all of eternity. And those are your options. And we're like, ah, well, if those are my options, like, I don't really want either if I'm being honest. Maybe I'm being too honest. But I guess not burning forever. Or maybe you're like really defiant and prideful and you're like, oh, I choose to burn. Cool. Good on you. <laughs> but we've heard this good news that is based solely on rescue. Right? And, it, and it's not that there is absolutely no rescue in the good news. If you've been around any length of time, yes, there is absolutely deliverance and rescue in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if that's all we're ever hearing, it's not the full gospel. That the good news is not just rescue out of, it is invitation into. That we are being brought out of something and brought into something. And so this escapist gospel has actually subtly undermined and warped our understanding of who God is and what God is like and what God wants from us. And we've begun to imagine this picture of this demanding, abusive father, if I can go that far. Well, maybe he's not abusive. Maybe he's just militaristic, and he demands perfection, right? And yet, when we see that depicted in real life, in any sense, no one looks at that and goes, oh, wow, what a loving father. What are we missing? So I want us to turn to this wellspring that almost all of us are probably familiar with, but for whatever reason, we've either ignored it or we've dismissed it. We've ignored it either maybe because of this whole like gospel of escapism has made it seem like uh, unimportant. They're like wandering through this desert and here's this like landmark that we're supposed to know and observe and go, yep, that's right. But then we move on and there's like nothing there actually for us. Or maybe we're not so familiar with it because we've dismissed it altogether. We've seen it and counted it and heard it. And we're like, there's no way that that could actually be true. That doesn't make sense to me. Nope, not at all. The wellspring I'm referring to is the idea that God is triune. It's the Trinity. That the God of Jesus is the God who has eternally existed as one God in three persons. And so the question that the early church has been asking and is turning over and that they've discovered this wellspring is the same question I want us to turn our attention to, and it is this, who is God and what is God like? And so this morning, together, we're going to explore three aspects of God. God as mystery, God as person, and God as love. And we're going to seek to recover this core distinction of God, not because it's an important landmark for us to acknowledge, but because out of it flows a wellspring of life for us, that there's something necessary here that this is telling us about God. One of the downsides of being in a church in the medical center or near the medical center of Houston um, in 2022, is most of us come in here with an empiricist mindset. There's nothing wrong with an empiricist mindset, right? I want to see it, taste it, measure it, touch it. Those are good things. But when it comes to God, we cannot, wow, we can't approach God that way. And, and when we do, we fall short. One of the things that I'm convinced of is that 
we like the empiricist ways of talking about God because it either keeps God at a distance or keeps God in a cage. That we can control him. That we can like still have some sort of power and leverage over God. And we are utterly uncomfortable with mystery. But we'd better get comfortable really fast because God is utterly mysterious. And this is where I want to start this morning. That when we come to this wellspring to drink deeply from, I want us to wrap our heads and our hearts around this unsettling, but in the end, incredibly comforting truth. That God is utterly mysterious. And I want to be clear by what I mean here. God is beyond us. In such a way, he is so beyond us that he is utterly unknowable to us. That I cannot sit down and use my, my logic to go, oh, there's a God in here, right? And I know there's a, there's a whole other side to this. I'll get there in a second. Before we get there, God is wholly other. God is invisible. God is unconceivable. He is radically transcendent. He is beyond our words and our language and our comprehension. This is something that the church in the East gets and embraces. It's something the church in the West has fled from. And so we have like apologetic conferences where I could be like, look, here's my three arguments for God. And now you believe, right? And be like, no, I still don't believe. Wait, why? This is logically right here in front of you. The Greek fathers say this about our God. A God who is comprehensible cannot be God. If I could wrap my head fully around the God who is, uh, what kind of God is that actually? And so I hope this morning we can restore some sense of the, the numinous, some sense of the beyondness that our soul actually aches for and longs for, is really like reaching out for and hoping to connect to. Uh, Callisto's Ware, I've mentioned him before and I will mention him, him again. He's one of my favorite writers and theologians. He is a, a Greek Orthodox father and professor and he says this, and I think it gets uh, at the heart of what we are talking about here when we talk about God as mystery. We see that the task of Christianity is not to provide easy answers to every question, but to make us progressively aware of a mystery. That God is not so much the object of our knowledge as the cause of our wonder. That's the God I want to know. Not the God I can put on a spreadsheet or on a piece of paper or on a systematic theology book, but a God who's alive and active and beyond me. A God that causes me to actually really fall on my knees and go, wow. And yet, even though God exists as a mystery, we know God. I'm talking about God. I, I shared last week, like, I've experienced and encountered God, and, and I want you to as well. And so, wait, how is it that we can know God? Because this God who is utterly beyond us has made God's self known to us. And we see this in John chapter 10, our text for this morning, verse 22. At that time, the festival of the de dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. 
Jesus answered, I have told you, and you do not believe. So what Jesus really meant to say here was, oh, no, no, you misunderstood my logical argument. Let me, let me explain it to you a different way. Right? These uh, Jewish leaders who've spent their entire lives dedicated to learning and knowing about God by studying the scriptures that talk about God are looking at God in the face and going, we don't recognize you. We don't know you. Who are you? Tell us who you are. I told you, and you do not believe, the works that I do in my Father's name testify to me, but you do not believe because you do not belong to my sheep. And so we see this idea here that Jesus is saying, hey, look, uh, you don't know me because you're trying to like wrap your heads around me, but I am not the type of God that you can wrap your head around. That's the wrong type of knowledge. And so then faith in God is not the kind of logical certainty that we can attain with like uh, in geometry, nor is faith in God the conclusion to some sort of process of reasoning, like we've solved some sort of math problem. Or maybe more uh, bluntly, Faith in God is not something we can arrive at because we somehow can read our Bibles better than the person next to us. Faith is not the suspicion that something might be true, but the assurance that someone is there. That someone is knocking on the door of our hearts, that is reaching out to us, that is trying to make itself known to us. This is what faith is. And so when we conceive of God as a mystery, we get this incredibly important and comforting reality that faith and doubt can and will coexist. Faith does not equal certainty. The reason why Redemption Church is a safe place for you to ask hard questions is because we had better have hard questions because God is big and beyond and we won't get the answers to all of the questions. This personal relationship is incomplete in each one of us, and we will spend a lifetime getting to know our God more and more and more. And so, of course, of course, faith and doubt can exist side by side. So then, is there anything that we can, like, with confidence, grab a hold of and say, yes, this is who God is, and there are two that I want to give you this morning. What God has made most clear about God's self and the person of Jesus is one, that God is personal, and two, God is love. So what do we mean when we say God is personal? And uh, this is going to get a little like philosophical, like roll with me here for just a second. I'll go through it quick. If you want to have like a long conversation about this, let's text me. We'll grab some coffee. Um, but I want to keep most of you awake, Okay. What we mean is that God is not a force or an entity, but a being which invites us into real relationship. And so we see this again in John, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. What my Father has given me is greater than all else, and no one can snatch it out of my Father's hand. I love this picture that Jesus gives us. Hey, you want to know what I'm like? I'm like a good shepherd. I'm like a good shepherd who knows his sheep, 
and a sheep know him so intimately and so closely that when they hear my voice, they follow me. So I uh, went to the zoo with my daughter yesterday. It wouldn't be Sunday if you weren't hearing a story about Zoe. Uh, so we're at the zoo, and of course she wants to go to the playground, because that's what you do at the zoo, right? You go to the playground that we literally have one like 100 feet up from our front door. So let's go to the zoo to play on a different playground. Um, and not like, let's not worry about animals. So anyways, we're playing on the playground. And it's like, okay, it's time to go. So I'm kind of like ushering off and letting her do her thing where she runs around free. Um, and she kind of attaches onto this string of adults and kids that are, and so she's like following them in this line. And I'm standing back and just kind of walking to go in the right direction. This is all great. And all of a sudden the group turns and takes like this sharp turn into like this exhibit. And she's whoop, right, just goes right along with them. And I'm like, uh-oh. Uh, I'm about to have a fight on my hands with a two-year-old because she wants to go that way and we need to go this way. And so I just say, Zoe. She immediately whips her head around. And in that moment, I, I, like, this text is on my heart and I can't help but see God here. Right? Had anyone said her name, like maybe she would have turned. Maybe not, but that combination of, I know her name, but I'm also the one that she knows saying it. She hears my voice, and she hears my name from my voice, and she immediately responds. It's this beautiful picture that Jesus paints. This is what faith looks like. God is a person. He's not like a force. Sorry, Star Wars fans. Right. To be a person necessitates relationship. Uh, we won't get into the weeds here, but like you can't be a person as an individual entity. You have to be like, uh, if a tree falls in the forest, does anyone hear this out, that, that whole thing? Like there's the biological reality of like, yes, of course, like atoms do things, and now I'm going to butcher science in front of you all, and some things happen in sound waves and noise, whether anyone's there or not. But does it matter if no one hears it, senses it? finds beauty in it or fear from, right? This idea of personhood is not simply that someone exists on a spreadsheet or in a house far, far away. It is the idea of knowing. C.S. Lewis illustrates it this way in his book about hell. We talked a lot about hell this morning already. <laughs> uh, I actually really love his book about hell. It's like an allegory, so don't, don't like throw rocks at me or C.S. Lewis. Um, you got hell wrong. Because there's buses and houses, right? Anyways, so he, he, uh, he depicts hell as this world where anyone can, like, come and go freely. But that everyone, because they're in hell and because they are the types of people that apparently need to be there, are choosing to be there. But not only that, they're choosing to be there and be as far away from God and as far away from each other as humanly possible. And so the, the world exists as one where everyone is independently moving away from everyone else into absolute isolation and oblivion. I don't need God and I don't need anyone else. All I need is me and myself with the world and everyone in it. Just leave me alone. Isolation and independence in so many ways undermines and erodes away at our personhood. And so and what we mean when we say that God is a person is that he is not just like some sort of power or force that we can like interact with and manipulate. He's someone that we can actually know. 
we have a relationship with. But this isn't really that helpful, because like part two here in my like philosophical rant is, well, you're in relationship with everything. That doesn't really help. Oh, be in relationship. Cool. I'm literally in relationship to this iPad. I can touch it and manipulate it and do things with it. But we clearly know that's not the type of relationship we're talking about. I could be in relationship with an abusive father, but that's clearly not the type of relationship that we're talking about. So then what do we mean? True, holistic, healing relationship necessitates love. So we get this from a Jewish philosopher named Martin Buber. Uh, he wrote, after World War I, before World War II, I'll give you the, the quick and dirty version. He says that we all exist in relationship with everything, but it's the, the type of relationship we have that matters. And the two that are important is the I-it relationship and the I-thou relationship, or the I-you relationship, because we don't live in like, I don't know, I guess the 1920s. Um, the I-8 relationship is this utilitarian, like we use the people and the things around us. We step on their shoulders and their heads and their faces to get ahead in life. What have you done for me lately type of relationship. The I-U relationship is one that actually sees the other and values them because of who and what they are. Regardless of what they do for us or have done to us, that they in and of themselves are worth knowing and there's real joy there. It's this love that exists. An example of this would be, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, prayer. The I-it relationship would be us going to God, praying so that we can get stuff out of them, like turning upside down and shaking them so all the godly change falls on the floor. Rather than seeing prayer as simply being with God because God is the type of being worth being with. That just being with God is the thing we're after in and of itself. And so to live in real relationship is to live in love. And if we're not living in love, then we're not really living in the types of relationship that we're talking about here. So when we say that God is personal and is relational, what we mean is that God is, of course, love. At the core of the very fabric of the cosmos is love because that's at the core of the very fabric of who God is. So we talk about God being one God in three persons, it's not just this interesting theological thing that we make note of and move on. Like there's something actually important here. Um, I met a, a new friend of mine, and I hope he doesn't mind me sharing this. <laughs> um, he was talking about, he grew up in a place where like you didn't hear much about Jesus when he did, it wasn't necessarily from Christians. Um, and he knew that God existed and like there was some sort of benevolence there, but he never really encountered or experienced anything yet that it, he was like, ah, this feels right. He explored Islam and found, ah, this feels like there's something lacking. He explored Judaism and he felt, ah, still, there's something missing here. This feels really demanding. All I'm hearing is you're not good enough. You're not good enough. You gotta be better. And then suddenly I, I learned about the God of Jesus. And there's something in this God of Jesus that says, hey, I actually care about you. 
as you are, even in all your brokenness and messiness. I care about you. You are worth caring about. I love you. When we conflate God to a single person, we destroy this idea that God has eternally existed in love. One of my favorite questions that teenagers used to ask is, well, wait, before God made anything, what was he doing? It's a fair question. It's a fine question. It also will melt your brain. But if God is this isolated individual God, then we don't really have a good answer for that. But if the Trinity is true, and I think that it is because, I'll show you why here in just a second, um, then that means that God was enjoying God's self, that the three persons of the Trinity were in mysterious union and love with one another forever and ever and ever, which meant out of that love, God creates the cosmos, and he creates you and me. We were made by love and in love for love because it's who God is. This is why the Trinity matters. Not because God's going to give us like a theology test at the end of all of this. So what does this mean? Uh, let's finish John, and then I will make a few closing remarks here. Verse 30. Jesus says, the Father and I are one. The Jews took up stones again to stone him, and Jesus replied, I've shown you many good works from the Father, for which of these are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered, it's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, though only a human being, are making yourself God. And this is the difference. Uh, go back to verse 30. So a lot of times people will say, hey, we're, the church made up the Trinity. They like invented this thing to control people. That's like a super cynical um, way. It's also like usually an uneducated one. Um, and I don't mean that in like an ugly way. I just mean that in like if you do some reading and you actually like listen to the people who described this at the beginning, like none of them are saying anything like that. But I want to show you like where is the early church getting this from? They're not inventing it. They're not imposing it on God. They are receiving it from God. That this is who God has revealed God's self to be. In the words of Jesus, the Father and I are one. And the strength of this is uh, covered up just a little bit here in English. Super quick Greek. So Greek is like Latin or Spanish in that it's gendered. We don't have gendered language in English. So father is a masculine noun. I is a masculine personal pronoun that Jesus uses. Oh my gosh, I'm about to fall asleep. Um, but then he uses this phrase, one. And, and what, what, like, to follow the rules of Greek grammar here, what Jesus ought to have said is one uh, masculine uh, adjective, I think it is. But instead he uses neuter. Uh, it's this in-between masculine and feminine. So why? What is the force of what Jesus is saying? It's exactly what you think it is, and it's exactly what they heard him say. You, being a human being, have just called yourself God. Not like God, not similar to God, not in union with God. You have made yourself God. And Jesus doesn't go, oh, no, 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 you misunderstood yeah, the Father and me, 
We're one. We're God. In the spirit. <laughs> and the early church is receiving this revelation and saying, this is what Jesus handed us. This is what Jesus said is true. Uh, this doesn't make any sense. And you know why they were okay with that? Because they knew that God was utterly beyond them. They didn't need analogies. Well, well you see, God is like ice. Or God is like a triangle, right? They received the mystery and lived into the mystery, and it caused them to go, oh, wow. Surely this is a God of love. God reveals God's self as love and invites us into that love. God invites us to be wholly taken up into the love that exists within God's self. Last thing here. John 17, verses 20 and 21. This is later on in the Gospel of John. Jesus is talking to his disciples. Sorry, Jesus is praying on behalf of his disciples. And then all of a sudden, Jesus says this. I ask not only on behalf of these but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through the disciples' word. That's us. That they may also be one as you, Father, in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us. If, if we are existing within the Godhead who is love, this is a real invitation into the divine love that has eternally existed for all time. So the Trinity is true because it's how God revealed God's self, but what we see then is that the God of love has revealed an eternal coexistence. Not just unity, but community. And that, that this thing is at the heart and the source of all things that are. And it is one in which we are constantly being invited into, even now in this moment. So when we are starved of both divine and relational love, we begin to unravel, we begin to suffer. But when we lean into divine love, when we lean into relational love, we begin to actually really find healing. We begin to find wholeness. We begin to find that thing that is beyond us that our souls have been aching for. So I want to return to Andre Rublev's The Hospitality of Abraham, and I want us to look at it again. The Hospitality of Abraham became known as the Trinity. And I want to invite us to notice and to reflect as we gaze upon the icon that what was originally these three angels that visited Abraham in the desert, we later learn, is actually somehow God. And that suddenly we realize there's an empty seat at the table. That in the desert there are these three persons and we find ourselves on this fourth wall gazing in with a real invitation to sit and to feast, to dine with eternal love. I'm going to have the band come up, and I want us just to do something a little bit that's like not what we normally do. <laughs> a little mysterious, a little Eastern. 
I want us to spend a moment in some silent prayer and contemplation. I want us to reflect on this reality. You can look at the icon if you like. You can close your eyes. You can do whatever you like. We'll just spend a few moments in silence. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. Please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.